Well, our sermon text this morning is uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Romans 5, 9 through 11. And if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there, and if you're able to do so, to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. Paul writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, the Bible says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray once more and ask God to teach us His Word, that we might understand these things rightly and be built up in the faith. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your Word. Thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it is the your gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Thank you that you sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. Thank you for everything in your word that's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, and sufficient for all things to make us uh, equipped for life and godliness in Christ. Thank you for all these things, and we ask once again that you would be pleased to teach us your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants here, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I've mentioned already at least once or twice today is Ascension Sunday. Uh, many churches don't observe a, cal- a church calendar or a liturgical calendar at all. Uh, we tend to observe one somewhat loosely. We're not strictly tied to it overly uh, in excessive form. But many churches still observe Ascension Sunday as part of, or Ascension Day as part of their church calendar. And in many of those churches, it actually falls on a thir- technically Ascension Day is on a Thursday. It was this past Thursday, and what, why that is, is it's 40 days after the resurrection, or 40 days after Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday is Ascension Day, and we get that from Acts chapter 1, verse 3, which we already read, but there Luke tells us, he says that the Lord Jesus, quote, presented himself alive to them, that is the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs, and then he says, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So that's where we get that. that that's how you do the math, so to speak. You say that 40 days after his resurrection is when we have him in Scripture being ascended to the right hand of God. I've already mentioned that the ascension of Christ is one of the most neglected truths of the Christian faith, and that is really saying something. I feel like I say that about a lot of things, but I think it's true about a lot of things. We tend to neglect even in Bible-believing Christian churches, we tend to neglect certain things. Part of that may be because many places we tend to jump around from thing to thing. We don't go right through books. When you go right through a book of the Bible, in many cases you end up coming across things that you might normally skip because it's uncomfortable or, or you're not sure what to say uh, or it's just not what you prefer to speak on. Uh, whatever the case may be, it's, it's, it is a neglected truth and so I think for us, once again, it's well worth our time to spend at least one Sunday out of the year, out of 52 of them, to specifically look at the ascension of Christ from a text of, of God's Word to see what it has to say about its importance. You know, We make much of the death of Christ on the cross, and we at least, if not much more than that, focus upon it on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, hopefully much more than that. 
you know, and it's good that we do that. It's good that we focus on those things. There's no forgiveness of sins for our sins without Christ's death on the cross. Uh, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And put, put, put the word your or my in there. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of my sins, of your sins. That's what it's saying. Hebrews 9.26, same chapter, says that Christ himself, quote, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's why Christ came, was to die for, for sinners, for his people. We make a lot, and rightly so, make much of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on that first Easter Sunday. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 4.25 that Christ Jesus was, quote, raised for our justification. It's part of our salvation. It was significant. In 1 Corinthians 15.17, Paul goes as far as to say that if Christ has not been raised, if he's still in the grave, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? It's futile or vain, and you are still in your sins. In other words, a dead Savior, one who stays dead, is no one's Savior. He saves no one. Have you ever wondered, though, why Christ's ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty matters? When you think of all the Scripture passages, and we haven't gone through even this much of them this morning, if you think of all the passages of the New Testament and the Old Testament that speak of Christ's ascension to the right hand of God. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why does the Bible talk about it so often? It must be important. Why Why does it matter so much? Why do we make as much of Christ's life and glory, his ongoing ministry on our behalf, uh, right now as we should? Do we think about it much? Does it impact our faith and life? Does it give us the encouragement that it should and assurance that it should? Why does Christ's ascension matter so much? How does his ascension benefit us as believers in Christ? How should his ascension encourage you and strengthen the insur- your assurance of salvation? And how should it even fuel your praise and rejoicing in the Lord? That's what it should do for each of us who, who believe in Christ. Those are some of the things I hope, Lord willing, that we're going to look at this morning from this brief text in the book of Romans, is what Paul talks about in our text, these things directly in some way. And the first thing that Paul does in our text, in this short passage, is he reminds us uh, that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been reconciled to God by Christ's death. That's the first thing he spends his time reminding us of, is that God has reconciled us to himself by the death of his Son. Look at verses 9 through 10 again. It says, Since therefore, Paul writes, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now, if I can back up a little bit and give, give you a thumbnail sketch of Romans 4 through 5, just for context. Won't read the whole thing, obviously, but Romans 4 through 5, those two chapters in, in many ways, uh, has a lot to teach us about the grace of God in justifying sinners by faith in Christ. And in a lot of ways, justification by faith in Christ is the main theme of Romans 4 through 5. That's the main theme of those two chapters together. Now, in Romans 4, what Paul does is he describes and defines for us 
what justification is, what God does when he justifies a sinner, how it is that a sinner, a wicked, godless, ungodly sinner, can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And who, who does Paul use as an example? He uses Abraham, the father, our father according to the faith. He uses Abraham as an example of being justified by faith in Christ. Look at Romans 4, verses 1 through 3. Romans 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, What shall we say, uh, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And then he asks the question we should always say, For what does the scripture say? Any question we have about God, about ourselves in relation to God, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about God's will for our lives in all areas of our lives, the question we should ask, and not just leave it at that, is what does the scripture say? And what does he say there? He quotes Genesis 15. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul's using that, rightly so, as as an example of justification by faith in Christ. So how was Abraham justified, according to Paul and according to the scriptures? Was Paul was Abraham justified by works? No. He was justified by faith. He was justified by faith by believing the promises of God, the promise that God had made to him of the Redeemer who was to come. And that's Jesus Christ. He quotes Genesis 15, 6, where we're told, and he quotes it there, as Abraham believed God and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham's faith in God's promise of the Messiah that was to come was reckoned or counted or imputed to him as righteousness before God. He did not make him righteous. He did not change the way he was and make him suddenly morally perfect. He accounted the righteousness of the Christ who was to come to Abraham by faith. I always find, I like simple, clear definitions, and I always find Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer 33 to be the clearest, most succinct definition of justification, which is a gospel issue. This is all about the gospel. Question 33, it says, what is justification? Good, good, good question. What is justification? Here's what it says. Answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace. In other words, it's not a process, it's a, it's an act. It's a one, one and done, once it's done, it's a done deal. It's an act of God's free grace. We don't earn it, we can't deserve it, we don't merit it in any way. It's free, the free grace of God. It says, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So there's two parts to it, right? He pardons or forgives all of our sins. And what's the second part? Accepts us as righteous in his sight. No one here, no one that you'll ever meet in this life is righteous in God's sight on our own. I am not, you are not, no one is. The only one who's righteous in God's sight inherently and intrinsically based on their own life is Jesus Christ himself. Sinners are anything but righteous. We have no righteousness of which to speak. So how can God accept a sinner, forgive his sins, her sins, accept you as perfectly righteous in his sight? It says right in there, it says, only for the righteousness of Christ 
imputed to us or accounted to us. And how is it received? By faith alone. Faith alone, not works. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 4 through 5, especially in chapter 4. That is, in Christ and by faith in him, God, by his free grace, pardons or forgives all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. But how can God do that with sinners like us? You know, if we're honest, we're not honest with ourselves, much less with each other, but we have, every one of us, transgressed God's holy law in more ways than we can possibly count. A thousand different ways in the last month we've probably transgressed God's law. We don't, we not only do we transgress God's law, we bear the guilt of our sin and Adam's sin as well. And not only that, our very natures outside of Christ are completely corrupted by sin. We, we, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's what we are. And that's why it's what we do. That's what we are before God on our own. No amount of good works on our own can make up for all those things. Even our good works are stained by that sin and corruption that we have outside of Christ. So how is it that God can justify and declare righteous a sinner? God can't lie. God can't pretend. God can't sweep our sins under the rug. God doesn't do that. He's holy and righteous and just. Why can God do that? He can do all that. He can save Saul of Tarsus and the thief on the cross uh, and, and, and all of us who know him because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us by faith. How does God forgive sin? Christ died and took the wrath of God upon himself that our sins deserve. How can God accept us as righteous? Well, he does that by accounting Christ's righteousness to you. He accepts you if you're a Christian in Christ. It's his righteousness that you are accepted in by God. It's accounted to us by faith that we are accepted by God just as if we had never sinned. And more than that, you're accepted by God if you're in Christ just as if you never sinned and just as if you always obeyed from the heart in every way. That's how you have been justified. You are as accepted, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are as accepted by a holy, all-seeing God as Jesus is because you are accepted in him. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. Well, in Romans 5, Paul changes gears a little bit. What, what he does in Romans 5 is he takes justification that he tells us about in Romans 4, and he begins to show us all the implications and blessings that come to us as a result of that justification by faith that we have in Christ alone by the grace of God alone. And the first thing he tells us about in, in chapter 5, the first thing that is the implication or result of our justification and new standing before God is that we have peace with God. If you've been justified by Christ, by faith in him, you now have peace with God. You didn't, on our own, we have nothing, we have not the exact opposite of peace with God. Outside of Christ, we are at war with God. Paul even calls us in this chat, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, enemies. We used to be God's enemies. He says elsewhere, he calls us children of wrath and sons of disobedience in Ephesians chapter 2. But in Romans 5, he begins to talk about these good things that come to us because of our new standing before God. And he says in Romans 5, 1 through 2, Paul says, Therefore, pointing back to chapter 4, Therefore, since we have been 
justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also, it's, the little commercials always say, wait, there's more. You have peace with God, but there's more, right? He says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You, ha- you now have access to God that you didn't have before. The only thing you had access to God outside of Christ for was judgment. His throne was a throne of judgment for all who are outside of Christ. That was all of us before we came to know Christ. But now, through him, through Christ, we have obtained access by faith, not by works, into His this grace in which we stand. You stand in the grace of God. Not on your own. And then he adds one more thing, which we'll touch on in our text as well. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He's saying, past, present, and future. You have been justified by faith, past tense with abiding results. Now, and forever, you have peace with God now. You stand presently in the grace of God. And in the future, what do you have the hope of? And not hope, not this kind of hope. Hope, a sure hope. The glory of God. Being in heaven, being in, as he told the thief on the cross, with God in paradise in heaven one day. That's what you have because you've been justified by faith alone in Christ alone, if you are a Christian here today. Peace with God, free access and standing in God's grace, having been fully restored to favor with God. Think about all the blessings we have by God's grace if we were in Christ by faith. Who in their right mind would trade any of that for anything in the world. The greatest things the world has to offer don't measure up to any of that. Think of the richest person in the world. Well, you don't have to put a name to that, but whoever you think of, I don't know if you think of Bill Gates or someone else, someone with so much money, you know, we always we joke around and say, somebody has more money than God. Well, nobody has more money than God, but think about someone like that. They should, if they had any sense, not that you could do this, they should be jealous of you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian and you live on a dirt floor somewhere in a hut, but you have peace with God, access to God's grace in which you stand and the hope of glory in heaven, they should be jealous of you to say the least. And yet those are some of the things, some of the many great blessings that you have if you're a Christian because of Christ's death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection, and his ascension. And so in our text this morning, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been past tense, justified by his blood, verse 9, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Justification is in the past tense in one in our English translations for a good reason. It's a done deal in the past. It's a done deal with present and future abiding benefits. Because we now stand justified before God, quote, by his blood, Paul says, much more or even more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God that is to come. Did you know that sometimes, I know we've said it before, sometimes the Bible talks about salvation in the past tense, sometimes it talks about it in the present tense, and sometimes it talks about your salvation and mine in Christ in the future tense. All of the above. Sometimes somebody will say, you know, maybe you've been asked this, are you saved Or have you been saved? And the right answer, if you're a Christian, is yes, if you understand what they're asking. But it's also appropriate to say, I am being saved right now. 
I have been saved. It's a done deal. But I'm also being saved by Christ right now. And one day I will be saved from wrath when Christ returns, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. I will be saved from that wrath which is to come. All three are true of you if you are a Christian. Well, here in our text, Paul practically does all three. He says or implies all three of those tenses. Having now been justified in Christ, that's past and present, we also will be saved, that's future, from the wrath to come. When Christ shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, we who are in Christ by faith will be spared and saved from that wrath. Why? Because Christ already bore the wrath of God in our place. There's no double jeopardy if you're in Christ. He, he bore all of it. When he said on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. It's paid in full with nothing left for us to pay. To be justified by the blood of Christ is also, it's, an, it's kind of a synonym in some ways, to be justified in Christ is also to be reconciled to God. It's not just to be forgiven, it's to be accepted by God as righteous. In verse 10, Paul basically summarizes what he said in verse 9 and restates it in another way. So he's kind of making the same argument he was making in the previous verse. To be reconciled by, to God is to be fully restored to favor with God. And so we're not just, we're not just justified and reconciled by the death of his son. He tells us in the next part of the, of our passage, we're also saved by his life. We're saved by his death and even more we're saved by his life is what Paul is saying. Look at verse 10. He's restating the same thing he said in verse 9 and kind of amplifying it. He's saying, for if while we were enemies, that's what we were, when we were, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his what? His life. Both matter and both have to do with our salvation and the power and the security of it. And many commentators rightly point out that this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. From the greater to the lesser. In essence, Paul's saying that if God went to such great lengths to save you and reconcile you to himself by sending his son to die for you, how will he possibly fail to bring you all the way to heaven? If he went to that great a length to pay for your sin, to reconcile you to himself, how will he not along with him do and give you all things? That's what Paul says. That's why Paul says much more. Much more are you going to be saved by his life if he's already done all, all of that. The implication is that God will most certainly save us to the uttermost, to use the words of Hebrews 7. 25. In other words, if he loved us enough, even when we were still his enemies, that he gave his only begotten son to die in our place and save us, if he's done all that when you were his enemy, how much more will he do for you in Christ now that Christ lives and you have been and are reconciled to him? Your status has now been changed and Christ now lives for you as well. This is the same kind of thing that Paul says later in Romans 8.32. Same kind of argument. He says, Romans 8.32, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And what does he say? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's given you for your salvation the best he has, he's not going to withhold lesser things from you. It would make no sense. He's not holding out on you. He's not holding out on us if you're in Christ by faith. 
How we who are in Christ need to get this through our heads and through our hearts. Are you in Christ? Are you a Christian this morning? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation? Then you, you are no longer than an enemy of God. You have now been justified and reconciled to God if you're in Christ. You have a completely new standing before God if you are in Jesus Christ by faith. A totally new status and standing before God. No, but Paul also contra- contrasts the death of Christ. Uh, you know, this, this is, this is, there's more than one contrast being made in this short passage. Paul not only contrasts between formerly being an enemy of God and now being reconciled to God through Christ, between our old standing and our new standing before God, uh, he also contrasts the death of Christ with his life and glory at the right hand of the Father, doesn't he? It says, if we were reconciled by Christ's death, how much more shall we be saved by his life? In other words, our Savior is even now actively at work in saving us and seeing to it that we are brought home to glory on that last day. He's not done working for your salvation. He is actively at work as he reigns over all things, securing your salvation and mine if you're a Christian. That's what our passage is teaching us. One of the main ways that Christ does that is by representing us, all of his people, before God the Father in heaven. He is our advocate, our mediator, our go-between between man, God, and man. And what is one of the things he does as that, inter- as that mediator is he intercedes or prays for us that we are, it's because of that we're never forsaken of the love of God. Look at Romans 8, 33 to 34. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Those whom God has chosen to save, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Is there a higher court than that? You know, we, we've, we've read some things in the news even the last day about the Ninth Circuit uh, Court. They're not the highest court in the land. The Supreme Court, as far as our government is, the Supreme Court is. There's a higher court to go to, but there's a higher court than that. He's saying, in, in a greater sense, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and here it is, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. Who can possibly overcome that? To condemn God's people. No one can. Jesus Christ, like we pray for each other. We prayed even this morning in our service. But Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for all of his people. That's why all things work together for our good. That's why nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're a believer in Christ, Jesus didn't just die for you, as important as that is. He didn't just rise from the grave for you, as important as that is. He also lives for you, too, as well. He lives forever to intercede for you as your mediator, ensuring that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are not just saved by Christ's death, but we are saved by his life as well. That is what Paul says here and elsewhere in the scriptures. The writer of the book of Hebrews, we already read it this morning, says much the same thing, but I think in even stronger language in Hebrews 7.25. That's our theme verse today in some ways. He says, consequently, he, that's Christ, is able 
to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through, through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Is anybody stronger than Jesus? No. Is anybody remotely as powerful and magnificent as Christ? No. And he's the one representing you and me before the Father. He is the one representing us, interceding for us, so that nothing can ever remove us from his love. Christ, our almighty Redeemer and Savior, again, he didn't just die for you, he lives for you even now. That's why he's able to save us to the uttermost when we draw near to God through him. Do you see why not just the death and resurrection of Christ, but also his ascension matters so much to your faith and life as a Christian? It should be a source of great comfort and joy and peace to you. His ascension, his his present work for your salvation should be something near and dear to our hearts as believers in Christ. Christ in heaven is the guarantee that all of us who are in him by faith will one day be there with him as well. As Rob even mentioned from the Gospels this morning, I go to prepare a place for you, John 14. And if I'm going to do that, I'm paraphrasing, I'll come back and get you. I will bring you with me. Right? He is even now our pro- our prophet. He used to, we talk about him being our prophet, priest, and king. He's our prophet, revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Short of Catechism 24. Christ is even now our great high priest, having once offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins to reconcile us to God. He died to reconcile us to God and now making continual intercession for us. Continual. Always praying. The best prayers among us don't pray continually as we should, but Christ does. He ever lives to do just that. And the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the king of the, of the rulers on earth, as Re- Revelation 1.5 says. He is our king who subdues us to himself by his gospel. He rules and defends his church, and he restrains and conquers all of his enemies and ours. That's what he's doing now. Christ is not sitting on his hands at the right hand of God. He is reigning over all things right now. He is defending and gathering his church. And even now he is restraining and conquering his enemies and making them a footstool for his feet, Psalm 110. Well, there's one more thing in our text that it might be easy to miss, but I hope I would hope that we wouldn't miss it. You know, I, when I first thought about this passage for this morning, for this morning's sermon text, I almost picked Romans 5, 9 through 10. And then I looked at it again and I thought, what am I doing? Verse, verse 11 is just as important as the other two. The whole book of Romans is important. But it's, it, it, it's the end of his argument. It's, it's important to keep it with the previous two verses, I think, that would have led us to miss, to skip that verse 11 would have led us to miss out on one of the most important parts of what Paul's really saying here in our text, the end result or purpose of our reconciliation to God by the death of his son and our being saved by his life is that you and I, if you're in Christ, might rejoice in God. That's the purpose. That's the point. If we, if we skip or miss that, we've missed the point. It should cause us to rejoice in God. Look at verse 11. He says, more than that. Remember I said, wait, there's more. He's not done. There's even more. He says, more than that, verse 11. We also, 
in addition to everything else, he said, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God through whom, through Christ our Lord, through whom we have received reconciliation. We who once were God's enemies in Christ and hated God and were children of wrath awaiting nothing but his, but our judgment. Now we get to rejoice because we've been reconciled to God. You can rejoice in God. In, in a lot of ways, this is the point of the entire chapter, the, in, the entire passage, is that sinners can now rejoice in God. Outside of Christ, that's the last thing you would have done. You would have called, as we read last week, you would have called for the mountains and the rocks and the hills to fall on you and hide you from the wrath of the Lamb. But if you're in Christ, everything's different. You get to rejoice and should and have ample reason to rejoice in God. It's really the point of the whole chapter. In fact, Paul brings this same note up again and again in the first 11 verses of the chapter. In verse 2, he says that we now rejoice in hope of the glory of God, verse 2. In verse 3, he talks about even rejoicing in our sufferings. That doesn't make any sense if you're not a Christian. The only people who can truly rejoice in even our sufferings are believers in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the hope and glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. And now Paul says we get to rejoice in God because we've been reconciled to him. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. The point of these verses, he's talking about verses 1 through 11. The point of these verses is to assure Christians of their salvation. They are to know that they are eternally secure in Christ so that they might be able to rejoice in God fully. The better, the better we understand and grasp the security of our salvation in Jesus Christ for all who are in him by faith, the better equipped and ready we will be to rejoice in God as we should. The more we grow in our faith, hope, and love by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the more we grow in our assurance of salvation in him, the more you and I will be able to rejoice in God no matter what is going on around us in the world. No matter what kind of sufferings you might be going through, if you are reconciled to God, you can rejoice in the hope of of the glory of God. You can rejoice in God himself if you've been reconciled to God by the death of his son and are saved now, even now, by his life. And so let us now, not just today, but as we go forth from this day, let us think often and think highly of what the scriptures say about the love of God toward us in Jesus Christ, that the reconciliation that he has given us by the death of his son, how we are furthermore saved by Christ's life as he reigns and intercedes for us at the right hand of God, that we might learn more and more to rejoice in Jesus Christ, to rejoice in God as we should. Amen. Let's, let's pray.